This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cone Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting zennovascotia.com. As I'm sure is true for many of you, I've been watching the news and though there are always events to be concerned about, some weeks perhaps hit closer to home than others. It's been uh, difficult for me to watch the events unfolding in Ferguson, Missouri. I find that when I see these photographs uh, of policemen in camouflage pointing rifles at citizens and the night photography of tear gas that I feel a bit of despair. Despair is another word for powerlessness. That's true whether we're there or whether we're just observers. It's useful for me sometimes to remind myself that we live in a remarkable time that is not all bad. So much progress has been made in spite of what the media likes to show us. uh, We live in the least violent moment in all of human history. And though things like this last week may reveal to us that we've been kidding ourselves a little bit about how far we've come, the fact is that we've made great strides in our understanding of what civil rights are and what civil rights can be. So I wouldn't want to go back to another time. But when I see... uh, some of the things that I've seen on TV recently. I can't help but think that some things are going in the wrong direction. And when I read about how money has come to be distributed and how that problem seems to be getting worse, who has the money and how they want to use it, that too feels as if we've turned the wrong corner. And I find myself wondering sometimes what I can do. It's a strange or at least interesting quirk of history that this tradition of Buddhism arose in a time and place where there was, practically speaking, no concept of citizenship. You could not, 2,500 years ago in India, choose what kind of citizen you wanted to be. It had been decided for you what kind of citizen you would be. Not just what kind of citizen, but your rank in society, and that would never change. 
as Buddhism moved into China, we can go back 1,500 years to the birthplace, the, the birth time of Zen, and find that there as well, there was no real concept of citizenship. There was the veneer of a meritocracy, wherein people could take uh, civil service examinations in order to enter into or, or insert themselves into the mechanisms of government. But those tests were based on uh, uh, Confucian studies. And those were not, that wasn't a topic that was really uh, easily available to the poor. So wealthy people had an opportunity to take a test which would allow them to have some greater influence than they did as merely wealthy people. 700 years later, uh, we find the, the origins of this particular tradition in Japan. And once again, it's the same. It's a feudal government. And so at no point, at none of these pivotal moments, did Buddhism ever develop a vocabulary around the idea of how we are to behave as citizens, how we are to consider our role toward the mechanisms of power. Even the local ones, which would most often be a monastery, it's pretty clear there's a vertical hierarchy and that vertical hierarchy is to be supported and maintained. So the way to be a good citizen in a monastery is to do what you're told. And then when you become someone who gets to tell people what to do, to do so in a, in a benevolent way. That's a good process. Uh, but we find ourselves, all of us in this room, people who have been born into a time and place where we can choose exactly what kind of citizens we want to be. We understand, even in our most cynical times, that people who are not directly in power can, at least to some tiny, tiny degree, affect change in the world. It's still a relatively new idea. But as Buddhists, this can feel more complicated maybe than it should be, because the language of Buddhism doesn't seem to support that kind of intentional uh, manipulation of power, right? We're told that we're supposed to be non-attached. We shouldn't be attached to outcomes. Fair enough. We're told that we are supposed to let go of fixed views. This is basic. And so we step into the political arena probably with a view, and then we think about it and we think, oh, maybe I shouldn't even have that view. And so I think for many, the question becomes a very uh, vital one. How do I stand within this practice and this tradition and 
simultaneously function as a good citizen of the world? What does it look like? Someone came to me just the other day and said, said uh, I don't know what to do about the 1%, but it's starting to really bother me. But I'm Buddhist, so I think maybe it's not supposed to really bother me. <laughs> That's a spiral that goes on forever. I believed for years that unless I had figured some basic things out, again, in the context of practice, that I would be of no use to anyone. I remember very clearly early in, in my experience of Buddhism reading these analogies and these stories that were basically saying, you know, if, 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 if you're trying to help in the kitchen, but you don't know what you're doing, you're making it worse. <laughs> right? Sit down and shut up. We try to say that in a positive way, but it can also be a way of saying, you're not ready yet, right? You're not cooked. The, the, your timer hasn't gone off on your oven. We'll pull you out when you're ready. And then, somehow, you'll be unleashed on the world and you will effect positive change. I completely bought that. And it's half true. Because as long as you don't know what to do in the kitchen, you're going to screw things up in the kitchen. But what we don't talk about is that you learn to cook by cooking. There's really no other way. And so what do we do? Just looking at what's happening around us today. What do we do about government that seems to be out of control or this last week police that seem to be out of control what do we do about the one percent i raise these questions tonight not because i'm going to tell you the answers because i don't know the answers i raise these questions because these questions bother me a lot i don't know But we can consider perhaps some guiding principles, some places where we don't want to budge. And it's all bad news. I, I was telling a friend of mine recently how much I envy uh, people who exist in a religious context that allows them to deliver good news. They can say, I have the good news. And Buddhists never have the good news. <laughs> I come to you with the bad news. That's always the shape of it. It's depressing. But part of it is that we can't, we can't look away. We can't shy away from any of it. We have to carry the full weight of it. One guiding principle that we might take with us into this field of questions is to accept complexity. I tried to find a better verb. Embrace complexity is not what I mean, so it sounds better. 
I thought about the eight awakenings of adults that we talked about. I think if I were to write that text, this might be the ninth. That an adult accepts that the world is complex and doesn't fight that. Even though accepting that can feel at times as if it saps all your power away. There's so much force and there's so much energy in viewing something as being simple. There's black and there's white. Which one do you choose? It's, it's caffeine. But no matter what the situation is, if you think that the solution is really, really simple, you're probably avoiding something. And you're probably avoiding it specifically in order to feel that clarity. It is exhausting and sometimes even frightening to lose that clarity. I come back to this over and over when people come to me and and they say, people, this happens in my hometown. Um, Not a lot of Buddhists in my hometown. And when I go home and visit friends, inevitably the conversation will turn to abortion. And they'll say, what's the Buddhist stance on abortion? And I'll say, the Buddhist stance on abortion is that it's really complex. And as long as everyone agrees it's complex, then there's a very powerful conversation that can be had about it. But for anyone who doesn't believe it's complex, there's no conversation to be had about it at all. Another guiding principle is that we must always, always find the humanity in others. We can never look away from it, ever. In some ways, this is restating the first. This can be painful to do, but anything other than this is a lie. We place a lot of cultural value, I think, on speaking from the heart. That kind of honesty. Speaking from the heart is not really so... That's not so impressive. Speaking to the heart is impressive. And you can only do that if you really believe that there's a heart there to speak to. If you imagine that anyone in the story in your mind is an irredeemable villain. You need to throw that story away. Because the world doesn't work that way. I've talked about this before. You look at anything on the news. Anything. Anything that disturbs you. And ask yourself, is there some set of circumstances some conceivable set of causes and conditions in which I could do the same thing that I'm seeing. 
My own personal experience is that the answer is always yes. It's a hard question to ask. And that's why we ask it. The third one I came up with was to help. And by that I mean that has to be the goal. Not being right. Being right is not a useful goal. It's actually a really stupid goal. Because if we accept the first guiding principle, we recognize that even though some things are more right than others, we will never be completely right. Because things are complicated. Setting that as your outcome sets you apart from the messy work of trying to be of benefit. You can be wrong and still be a benefit. But I think it's very difficult to be of benefit if you're clinging to being right. And then the fourth one that I came up with, and this is the last one. I really wanted to give you some good news. Was that we should expect to fail. But we have to do it anyway. Which basically sums up my whole idea of practice. It will never go the way you want it to. And on your best day, you're going to screw it up. We're not really up to the task. Of getting 100%. But that to me is the nature of vow. When you take up vow, you wake up in the morning and you know what you must do. But if you're honest with yourself, you probably don't know how to do it. And you stay in that space all day. And the next morning you wake up with exactly the same question. How do I do what I know must be done? And you do your best. And you make a huge mess in the kitchen. You burn a lot of things. But in this way, you're honest. And in this way, if you do succeed at affecting change, you affect change that's real. I believe that if we don't follow these guidelines, and I'm sure there are more, that even if we succeed on the surface, that we ultimately are contributing 
by being part of the same problem. Because we perpetuate the mindset that caused the problem in the first place. The other side wants to be right, too. The other side thinks it's simple, too. If you want to change the story, then you have to first imagine that there's no other side. You have to act from a completely different place. I think it's all really hard. But but thinking about this talk and coming back to basic principles uh, makes me feel just slightly less despair. I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.